Bullmore is a pastor of Crossway Church in Wisconsin, and I heard a talk that he gave at a Sovereign Grace Leadership Conference in the States entitled The Functional Centrality of the Gospel. Now, I didn't learn anything new as I listened to that talk. It was kind of all there in my head. But this talk kind of crystallized for me in a really helpful way, brought things together in a way that's just really helped me think about this topic of, of, of how we grow as Christians, how we're built up with the gospel. And, and really, that's in a sense what I want to present to you tonight. Like the, um, as you read through the Bible, I hope that uh, you'll see over time that the Bible is not, uh, says that the gospel is not just sort of the ABC of the Christian life, it is the A to Z of the Christian life, A to Z as we used to say in America. It's, it's the whole thing. We sometimes have a very narrow view of what the gospel is, and we think, well, the gospel's the doorway that I go through, and then I go on to other things. No, the gospel is actually the whole thing of our lives that, that will be the change agent that God will use. There are a number of challenges today in Christendom. Uh, there are many churches where there is a confusion and fuzziness about what the gospel is. Uh, and in some cases, it's theological illiteracy. and In other cases, it's spiritual apostasy. But I think that even in a church like Charlotte Chapel, where, we, where the gospel really has been faithfully preached for over 200 years, and hopefully where we know what the gospel is, there is still a struggle that we have to make connections between the gospel and our thinking and our behavior. I take it if we did a survey, most of us would tick the box that we knew what the gospel was. And yet so often, and I think about my own life, there is a disconnect between what I know and how I'm thinking and sometimes how I'm acting. Uh, there's a book by C.J. Mahaney called The, the Cross-Centered Life. And he suggests this, that here are some symptoms of, uh, 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 that we experience when we don't have the gospel at the center of our lives. He, he writes this in his book, You often lack joy. You're not consistently growing in spiritual maturity. Your love for God lacks passion. You're always looking for some new truth or, or new experience that will kind of pull all the pieces of your faith together. And my concern as the pastor of Charlotte Chapel is that we will not only know the gospel and will not only know that the gospel is central, but in, in practice the gospel will be at the very center of our lives and of our church. That we are as a church building each other up with the gospel. So I want to show you uh, this, uh, this evening just a little outline of, of, of this. And there's a diagram I found very helpful and it's of three concentric circles. There we are. And um, in the center circle is the gospel. We must see the essential centrality of the gospel. There are, ex- there are many explicit biblical statements, aren't there? Uh, think about 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. And if that's uh, too small to see, you can open your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Let's turn that up. Page 1155, 1155 in the church Bibles. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, you'll see in five words the gospel uh, put in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. It's a statement that speaks of the reality of our sin. It speaks of the necessity of divine Punishment, 
Somebody had to die. And then it speaks of the wonderful provision by God through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. But notice with me how these verses begin. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. See, this highlights the essential centrality of the gospel. It is of first importance. It is the most vital. It is the most crucial. It should be at the very center. That was the central part of Paul's preaching. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Oh, it's not verse 2. What is it? Oh, chapter 2, verse 2. Yes, chapter 2, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the very essence, the heart of what he preached to them. I I resolved to, 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 to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This message of Christ crucified, which to so many just can seem a weak and foolish and irrelevant thing, is in fact the power of God. The gospel is central. The gospel is powerful. Romans 1.16 says this, doesn't it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, for Paul, uh, the gospel was central in his preaching. It was the power of God. That's why he preached it in that way. And, and for him, it was, the gospel was not just something he preached. It was about the whole of his life. Galatians 6.14 says this, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's living in a new way now. A way that is old life, where it was dominated by living for the world. That's, that's gone. That was crucified with Christ. He's now living in this new way of boasting in nothing else except the cross of Christ. And as he passes on the responsibility to, of leadership to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. And at the end of the book in 1 Timothy, he says this in chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent, irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. The gospel is essential. It's powerful. And there is a tendency to drift away from the gospel. Timothy must guard it. Because people swerve away from the faith, from the gospel. We need to guard it by preaching it and believing it. Just a, a, a short history in church history will tell you how many churches have ended up losing the gospel. Or how many parachurch organizations which started with such a gospel passion have lost the gospel. Have you heard of the YMCA? It was a Christian organization to get young men together and teach them the gospel. I go there now, and well, in America I used to go, and 
It's oriented about just physical exercise. It is so easy for churches, for parachurch groups, for Christian colleges to lose the gospel. Harvard was a place that was to train ministers for the gospel. It is not so today. Well, actually it is, but uh, not many. And in so many places we see the theological priority of the gospel. But you see it too in, as a storyline of the whole Bible. Look to Luke chapter 24. If you want to say, well, what is the gospel? You could legitimately hold up the whole Bible and say, this is the gospel. The gospel can be uh, encapsulated in five words. Christ died for our sins. But in essence, the gospel is the whole of the Bible. Because it all points to that central event. So there is Jesus uh, in his resurrection body. And uh, he's there in the upper room. He's just surprised two people on the Emmaus Road. He's given them a very similar lecture. And then he turns up in the upper room. Luke chapter 24 verse 44. Then he said to them. It's on page 1062. If you're looking in the church Bibles. 1062. Then he said to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Jewish scriptures were divided up in three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings, of which the Psalms was the biggest book. And Jesus is saying, everything about me in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is about me. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. See, if we're going to understand the Old Testament correctly, uh, we'll come out by understanding that it's saying this, that Jesus had to suffer as the Christ on the third day, he had to be raised from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations in his name. That's the essential message of the Old Testament. And of course, what's the New Testament? It tells us about the coming of Christ. It tells us about the significance, implications of his life. And so the whole Bible, the whole plot line of the Bible points to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how does this gospel become central to our lives? That's the key question tonight. How does it function at the center? And I think the answer is, for it to be functionally at the center, it needs to be connected to the areas where we live. It needs to be connected to our lives. And there needs to be connection to the way we think. And there needs to be connection to our conduct. And really, those represent the two other rings on that diagram. This is how the gospel will wield its influence on our lives when we see these connections. So the most immediate connection then is, is, the, is the gospel truths, the doctrinal implications of the gospel. And I've written their gospel truths so we don't confuse it with gospel truth, the gospel. There, these are truths that are true because of the gospel. They flow out of the gospel. They are not the gospel themselves, but specific implications of the gospel. They grow out of it. So 1 Timothy 1 verses 10 to 11 speaks of doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. See what's being said there? There is teaching, there is doctrine that naturally flows from the good news that Christ died for our sins. 
There are truths that get their shape from the gospel. So what I'm not talking about is this. I'm not saying here's the gospel, it's true, and here's some other things that are true. What I'm saying is that they're related to one another. It's content uh, that, that, that is there because of the gospel. And, and these are truths that, that, that bring the gospel to bear and function, particularly in our minds. I don't know whether you've stopped, think, to, stopped to think about this, but we, we spend a lot of time living in our heads, in our minds. Sure, there are times when we kind of interact with people around us, but most of our waking hours, we live in our own heads. Our thoughts, generally, are ticking away. <laughs> Some of you right now, they're not, but generally, our thoughts are ticking away. And so we must bring the gospel to bear upon our thinking and upon our attitudes. And there are three kind of sinking sand pits that as Christians we often wander into. There's legalism, there's condemnation, and subjectivism. Legalism is when we base our relationship with God on our own performance. Condemnation is when we're more focused on our sin than on God's grace. And subjectivism is when we base our view of God on our changing feelings and emotions. And I want to suggest to you that those are three common sort of sinking sand pits that we so easily fall into in our Christian lives. And we need the gospel and gospel truths to be constantly renewing our mind and changing our thinking and challenging our emotions so that our thinking and feelings are more and more conformed to the shape of the gospel. So let's turn to the book of Romans there. Uh, It was read to us tonight. Romans chapter 5. That's page 1,132. Now, I'm guessing that if you've been a Christian for many years, you're quite familiar with the material here. But I want you to notice the logic of verse 1 and how emphatic it is. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See those logical words there? Therefore, since. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the gospel that is, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Something follows from the gospel. Something is true because of the gospel. We have peace with God. This is a necessary implication of the gospel. And if we grasp that connection in our minds, if we really get this, it will go a long way to change us as people. It will impact the whole issue of legalism. That view that God deals with me on the basis of my performance. And the truth is that we all default back to a view like that. You know, if I've read my Bible every morning this week and I've said my prayers, then, you know, God really likes me this week. And this week, for various reasons, I haven't really got to my Bible reading and my praying hasn't been that good. And God must hate me. I can't, I don't deserve to be in his presence. Well, that's legalism. God does not deal with me on the basis of my performance. That's what Romans 5 verse 1 says. God is not angry with us who trust in Christ. 
See what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by putting our trust in the Lord Jesus and his saving act upon the cross, we have peace with God. This is the state in which I I, I awake every day if I'm trusting the Lord Jesus. I have peace with God. God is not angry with me. So often, um, our service can become joyless. Our practice of the spiritual disciplines and and service can become um, just a duty and a, a chore when we think that we're doing it to earn God's favor or right standing with him. That, that, that legalistic thinking will kill us and choke us. But when we get this, that we are justified through faith and we have peace with God, then we can approach God's throne of grace every day, not because I'm having a swimmingly brilliant day on my own recommendation or whether I'm not. I'm coming through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have peace with God. I have the right to access to him. And this is a, a wonderfully transforming thing, that it is Jesus' righteousness that is the standing that I have before God, not my own. Or turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul could have got the point across simply by saying this there is now no condemnation. But he really wants to make it clear. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's been spelling out the gospel in the book of Romans. And he comes to Romans 8 verse 1. He wants us to know there's a very clear application of truth that we need to make to our lives. It's the therefore is, is there to help us see the connection between the gospel and this major doctrinal implication. If we can grab hold of this teaching, I believe it will really change our mental worlds. I remember one evening back in uh, Spokane at the elders meeting, we had a break and I just went around the table and said, look, how are things going on in your life? And we went around the room one by one. We'd known each other for years at this stage, so we were just really honest with each other. It was great. But one by one we went around and each of us were loaded with feelings of guilt and condemnation. Lots of different reasons. Uh, but we went around each room and for different reasons, each man there was feeling loaded down with guilt and condemnation, things that we had done, things we'd failed to do. And we need to grab hold of Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Should we be feeling condemnation if we're trusting Christ? Not according to this verse. We can be completely Free from condemnation. We should be more aware of God's grace and the boundless love of our Savior than we are of our failings. And yet that's a struggle, isn't it? To be more aware of God's grace? Or is that easy for you guys? As I chat to people, that is a constant struggle for people to really believe what we say we believe and for that truth to be active in changing and transforming the way we think. And if we get this, it will fill us with thanksgiving and joy. And if we had time, we could 
keep going through the New Testament. In fact, I would urge you to do that, just to see how it spells out what the gospel is and then spells out what are the doctrinal truths that come from that and meditate on how that changes the way we should be thinking. Jim Collins wrote a a management book called From Good to Great, and in it he has this image of... um, he talks about what are the companies that have done well, and one of the marks of companies that have consistently done well is they've stuck to one main thing, and they've kept doing it consistently. And he had this image of a huge, big, heavy sort of flywheel, a big, big thing that, you know, you, if you put your, you know, you've got a pivot in the middle, the whole thing can rotate. If you, if you try and move it, you could hardly move it. But if you keep pushing that thing in a consistent direction... It will build momentum. And in fact, you take your hand off, that thing will spin for a very long time. To begin with, it feels like nothing's happening. Keep pushing in a consistent way, and things are happening. In fact, in old machines, you can attach things to flywheels and and, and do and achieve things. Get mechanical energy off it and to run other things. Well, for us, the thing that we must have at the center is the gospel. And I hope that you will see Sunday by Sunday that our preaching is, is centered on the gospel. The gospel is being proclaimed in its fullness, that the gospel is moving. My hope is that Sunday by Sunday, this, this huge heavy flywheel of the gospel is moving in our congregation. And the important thing is that as we teach and disciple, is to help see, people see the connections between the gospel and their lives. Because the gospel will do the work when we make that connection. We we need in every aspect of our life together, in our small groups, in Sunday school, in youth ministry, to help people make the connection between the gospel and their lives. We need each other to to keep reminding each other that this is the case because we're so prone to forget. Isn't that why Jesus urged us to, uh, to meet together regularly in the Lord's Supper? Because we're prone to forget these truths. That's why we're given baptism as a reminder to us of what the gospel is and how it's come to change and transform us. In Romans 15 verse 13, here's a, a, a wonderful statement. I've often used it at the end of services. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Do you see that it is in believing certain things, in believing the gospel, that will bring joy and peace in our life? Do you want joy and peace? Look to the gospel. Believe the gospel. Meditate upon the gospel. Think about how the gospel will change the way we think. And then the next layer, uh, there is behavioral implications of the gospel. There's gospel conduct on the outside. Next slide. Great, thank you. We've been thinking about this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There is a way of living that is in line with the gospel. Do you see that? There is a way of living that fits with the gospel, that's appropriate to the gospel. Galatians 2 verse 14, Paul confronts Peter uh, because he sees this. When, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he confronted Peter. We won't go into the specific details now, but 
But Paul observed in the life of the Apostle Peter that his actions were not in keeping with the gospel. The gospel had some necessary entailments and he wasn't doing it and so he challenged him. See, an intelligent person should be able to argue backwards from observing our life to the gospel. That's a challenging thought, isn't it? They should be able to observe our life through the week and and argue back from that to the gospel because the gospel comes and directly has a bearing upon the way we conduct ourselves. Here's some examples. In 1 Corinthians 6, he calls on uh, the church there to flee from sexual immorality. Now please notice the connection. This isn't just morality. By the way, this is one of the things that drives me nuts about VeggieTales. It just teaches morality. It never connects it to the gospel. So let's make sure we keep an eye on that. Anyway, um, here, here we've got some teaching about sexual ethics. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. That was a random thought, wasn't it? Just came in and out like that. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Well, that is sex outside um, marriage, outside the commitment of the marriage bond. Flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. Glorify God with your body. You see, as he's talking about sexual ethics, he brings out one of the great concepts of the gospel, the concept of redemption. You were bought with a price. Your life as a Christian was bought by the blood of Christ. And in light of the gospel, he brings the gospel to mind. Uh, He says, remember, you were bought by God, you belong to God, therefore glorify God with your body. There's the logic. It's a gospel logic. And it's amazing to me that this little moral exhortation of um, sexual morality is attached to this already huge moving flywheel of the gospel. There's a direct connection that's being made. You see that? How are we going to stand in a culture that we are in? How are we going to live differently when all around us uh, the sexual morality is so dramatically different? It will be as we have the gospel at the center. And we realize the significance of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, and we seek by God's grace to connect that gospel to the way that we live. We were bought with a price. Gospel momentum to sexual purity. Or think about Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as... In Christ, God forgave you. See that little, the two words, just as. See what's the model and the motivation for forgiving others? It's all attached to the gospel, isn't it? So I could say to you, look, just forgive that person. Forgive them. No, that's, that's just morality. The Christian ethic is this. Be kind and compassionate. Forgive each other just as. In Christ, God Forgave you. Do you know the forgiveness of God in your life? Well, meditate on that. Because that will give you the grace and power and strength to just in the same way, to be kind and compassionate to others, to forgive others. The gospel can be driving real 
practical changes in our lives. Or Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Doesn't just stop there, does it? Husband, love your wives. Okay, to-do list. Moral statement. No, it's more than that. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. That's a gospel reference, isn't it? That again is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus in my place. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And, and that is applied. Gospel momentum is put behind my behavior as a husband. Have you thought how the gospel changes your life as a husband? Are you allowing the gospel to change the way you live as a husband? That's what Ephesians 5 is telling you to do. Or in the area of giving, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7 to 9. See that you excel in this act of grace also, Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, here's something as simple as, as giving is tied to this huge momentum-moving thing of the gospel. That's what's driving generosity. That's what should be driving generosity. When we understand God's grace to us in Christ, that he, though he enjoyed the riches of heaven, became poor, incarnated, went to the cross, so that I could become rich. And if we get that, it's going to loosen our wallets. The gospel is going to have an impact on the way we think, and it's going to have an impact on the way we live. You see, the gospel needs to be brought to bear on every aspect of our lives. The gospel has something to say about racism. has something to say about suffering or self-control. The gospel has something to say about worship or modesty, our clothes, our jokes, how we drink, what we drink, how we eat. This, this is the biblical way that the gospel is supposed to be functioning centrally to our lives and to the life of this church. And ultimately, all Christian behavior should flow out of this gospel. Now, I don't think I've probably told you anything you haven't heard before as a Christian. But to me, when I heard this, it just crystallized for me the absolute essential nature of having the gospel functioning at the center of my life. And you know what? I struggle with joy. And it's a rebuke to me. I think, when I'm having a joyless week, I need to seek God's grace to understand the gospel afresh and to put it at the center of what I'm about. What about you? Where do you need to see the gospel functioning in your life right now? Maybe it is in the area of forgiveness. Maybe it is in the area of giving. I don't know. What is it for you? Is it an area of your thought? Is it an area of your practice? Do you know, the gospel is God's power. My hope and prayer is that we will continue what's been happening for 200 years, but seek to grow and flourish in it, that the gospel will truly be functionally the center and transforming agent of power in our congregation and in our lives.